Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Major League Hall of Famer and Milwaukee Brewer legend, Robin Yount. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a Milwaukee Brewer legend. He was a two-time AL MVP. He's a member of the 3000 Hit Club and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1999. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Yount. Robin, thanks for coming on the program. Well, it's my pleasure, Brett. It's, uh, uh, you're just telling me before we went on the air now that you have a son in the minor leagues. Man, how many generations of Boones are there playing professional baseball? Well, if if he can make it, that'll be four. I, you know, I tell him all the time. I said, no pressure, man. Just but but yeah. you better make it. How about better make brother? it? Does he have, I, now wait, who's interviewing who? Sounds like I'm interviewing you. But I, I like it. I like it. Let's let's reverse the roles. <laughs> does, does your brother? Uh, does got, your brother following suit too? I don't know if we've got if we've got a big leaguer on that side. I don't know if we've got one. <laughs> and uh, my my two, I uh, Jacob, who's a, who's an A ball. He's got two younger brothers. They're seniors in high school, um, but they're done playing baseball. So <laughs> right now, it looks like we got one chance. <laughs> well, that's still pretty good. That's not uh, that's not a bad uh, uh, record, I guess for. Uh, for family members and and uh, generations in in professional baseball, that that's that's pretty dang good. Yeah, pretty cool, and you know, proud of the guys definitely that came before me and and the guys that came after me. But um, you played for the Milwaukee Brewers your entire career. It's it's a rarity, especially in 2022. Uh, it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, I think of I think of Robin Young, I think of Tony Gwynn, I think of Barry Larkin. Uh, Cal Ripken, but I don't know if those days are completely over, but, but, but they're close. Could you have ever imagined playing for another team? Yeah, it was close actually. Uh, 89, it was 89, right? After 89, I was a free agent and, uh, you know, at the time it felt like, you know, the brewers at that particular time, you know, the, the 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 times were different in that there were small market teams that couldn't afford necessarily to play the game with the big boys and we were kind of one of those and it didn't I didn't at this stage of my career in '89 I was almost I wasn't almost done but I was getting toward the, where I was on the twilight of my career let's put it that way and I just didn't feel like we were all in in Milwaukee as trying to win another championship as far as going out and getting the players that you need to win. And at that stage, all I wanted to do is have one more shot at a world series. I played at that time, probably 17, 16 or 17 years and was in one world series. And I wanted another shot at it and didn't feel like we were necessarily doing everything we could to, to make that happen in Milwaukee. So I considered, uh, uh, going somewhere else, uh, ended up not doing that. Uh, I was, um, I was pressured pretty heavily by the owner 
Mr. Bud Selig and and the and the community, uh, honestly, to to stay there and. In hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made in uh, uh, in my baseball career. That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely, and especially nowadays, it, it's a really unique thing. And and you said at the end, you said you know it was the right thing to do. Uh, all said and done, just you know going forward. And I re- I remember I played with Tony Gwynn in uh, just one year in two thousand, and his knees were getting a little rickety, and he'd always be complaining to me. And I'd say, Tony, you, you can always hit can always go to the American League and, and he just said you know I, I, I'm, I'm just a Padre Brett and, and I think I'm always going to be a Padre and he made that decision you know and uh, obviously he you know he won seven or eight batting titles I forget what it was but he yeah. did it his way and, and and I think he had the similar feelings to you that I'm glad I did it I'm glad I stayed and it would have probably extended Tony's career a couple of years where he didn't have to play the field but uh I don't know there's something pretty cool for a guy that didn't play for one team and you know I played for three or four teams it's pretty cool the guys that uh they come into an organization and, and they're there the whole career I don't know there's something to me that that's kind of special at that maybe because of the uniqueness of it but anyway uh, your childhood. Let's talk about that a little bit. I want to hear about a young Robin Yount. What were you like? I know you were born in Danville, uh, Illinois, but I, then you moved to Southern California uh, when you were real little. Tell me about a young Robin Yount. Were you always a big baseball player? Do you, do you have a team? Do you have a favorite player? Well, I was I was little boy that loved to, you know, get into trouble and and you know, pretty active in lots of different things. By no means was I a baseball-only guy, especially young. Um, backing up just a little bit to the Danville, Illinois birthplace, that's all that was, was a birthplace because home was actually in Covington, Indiana, on a farm, and the nearest hospital to Covington, Indiana, was in Danville, Illinois. So, uh we really were from Indiana, or at that time, my parents lived in Indiana. But we only lived there nine months of my life. And when I was nine months old, we moved to Southern California. My father was in, uh, he was a chemical engineer. He, he literally was a rocket scientist. So if anybody ever teased me about my father and said he's no rocket scientist, I could call him on it. Because <laughs> oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> so... So uh, he got offered a job in aerospace out in Southern California in the 50s when, you know, that was pretty cool. So that's how I ended up uh, nine months old in in, uh, California. And then uh, when I was little, you know, back then you didn't play Little League at four or five like they do now. I I think I signed up for Pop Warner football when I was eight and uh, Little League when I was nine. And by the time I was 12, I was racing motorcycles too. So if you uh, uh, put all those things together, I, I, I basically played the sport that was in season. I even had a basketball hoop on the garage, but uh, never, never played organized basketball. It was one of the, it's the major sport I never played organized. We shot a lot of hoops and played a lot of pickup games around the neighborhood, but I never was on a team. But I played football and baseball, and like I say, my my real passion was racing dirt bikes out in Southern California when I was a teenager. 
I was looking up your high school, William Howard Taft High. You got a big alumni. I mean, Marcia and Cindy Brady went there. Uh, baseball players, Gabe Kapler, yeah, Robin, was, Wright, Robin Wright, Robin Wright Penn, uh, Larry Durker, and Easy E are the guys that that I looked up and and they, they said they went to Taft. I know a, a buddy of yours, Kevin Kennedy, was I think a, yeah. a teammate of yours was in. in no, no, yeah, yeah teammate of yours at Taft. Yeah, we were teammates on high school team, and he was a year a year older. Uh, but he was a catcher on our high school team. Um, another guy named Kelly Paris played in the big leagues. He was he was the shortstop behind me. I think he followed me at Taft, and uh, and there was uh, I was friends with Chuck Connors' kids and. Uh, Pete LeCock went to Taft, who played in the major league. Um, we played in on American Legion together. So there was there was that my brother made made it. He got one appearance in the major leagues. He was he was a pitcher, wasn't he? Yeah, he's five years older than me. He was kind of between a little older than Pete, and uh, and uh, and I was a little younger than Pete. So the three of us kind of overlap, but. Uh, yeah, so there was a lot of baseball players came out of Taft that uh, that at least played professionally. Maybe all of them didn't make it to the major leagues. Obviously, Larry Durker had a real nice career and managed in the major leagues and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, we had we had a a pretty good opportunity there to to, to uh, get some exposure. And obviously, Southern California is pretty pretty popular for athletics out there. 1973, uh, you're the third overall pick in the draft. Leading up to that, uh, did you consider going to college, or, or did you know that I'm going to sign? Did were you pretty aware the day of the draft that you're probably going to be a high first round pick, or did or did you plan for Plan B? I'm going to go to college. Well, uh, kind of all of the above. <laughs> uh, I was, I was committed to going to Arizona state if I didn't sign and was seriously, uh, looking at going there. I thought it would have been a great place to go play baseball, which in hindsight, it would have been, obviously it worked out, uh, that I didn't go there, but it, I think even had I gone there, I would have had a great time. I, there's some major league players, um, Ken Phelps and, uh, uh, not Brian Bannister, uh, Floyd Bannister. Brian is his son who played in the major leagues. They were, uh, Floyd and, and, and Ken Phelps were, uh, at ASU at that time. And they all ended up playing in the big leagues and we would have been all teammates together at ASU. But so the, the answer to your question was I would have been perfectly happy going to college because I had a great school to go to and, and, and play baseball at. But then, uh, the reality of it was I wanted to play professional baseball at some point and it came sooner than later. So, uh, it ended up being a pretty easy decision when I was drafted as high as I was, uh, uh, to sign and, and start that, uh, that process in motion. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now and they are the official sponsor of the Boone podcast. Dan. Thanks Boone. 
College basketball fans, join the action on the court during the biggest tournament of the year with DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn your team's victory into your own big win. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. It's that simple. If they win, you win. Everyone wins. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still join the College Hoops action with DraftKings Pools. Everyone can play free pools all March long for a shot at a share of over $250,000 in prizes. Simply join a pool and answer questions like, who will make it to the next round? And who will hit the most three-pointers? Then track your results. Simply download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $5 on any college hoops team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. If they win, you win. With promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus restrictions apply. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling, and Referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-NEXT-STEP, Arizona, 1-800-522-4700, Colorado, New Hampshire, 888-789-7777, visit HTTP colon forward slash forward slash ccpg.org slash chat connecticut 1-800-BETS-OFF iowa 1-877-770-STOP-7867 louisiana 877-8-H-O-P-E-N-Y text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369 new york visit obgr.org oregon call text in tennessee redline 1-800-889-9789 tennessee or 1-888-532-3500, Virginia, 21+, plus, 18+, plus, New Hampshire, Wyoming, physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See HTTP colon forward slash forward slash DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. And now back to my interview with Robin Yout. This is where it gets interesting to me. You, you sign Milwaukee Brewers, like I said, third overall pick. You played 64 games in the minor leagues. You know, now we, we discussed earlier me being down uh, to watch some spring training games with my son. And I look across the table at this young man. And he's, you know, he's 22 years old. And I'm thinking, well, you know. Uh, me and Robert are going to get, get together on the show tomorrow night. <laughs> and I'm going through and doing my, my background checks. I'm saying 18 years old in the big leagues, you played 64 games in the minor leagues. How was that for you? I, I can't even fathom it. The guy went, I went to three years of college. You know, I came out of USC and I felt like I was ready. I got through the minor leagues real quick, but, but it was different. I had three years to grow up a little bit, be away from mom, 18 years old in the big leagues, was it a big deal for you or you just thought, no, this, this is kind of how I expected it to go. Well, I certainly, I'd be lying if I said, Oh yeah, I expected to be in the big leagues right away. Uh, I, you know, if we backtrack a little bit, there's a lot to say for being in the right place at the right time. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers had uh, very little pressure in those days to even compete for a, championship or division title or those things just weren't even thought of. If you remember, uh, the Brewers were an expansion team of only about 
let me see, they started out as the Seattle Pilots, I think it was in 69. So if I went to spring training in 74, the, the, the organization was only four years old, five years old. Um, and in those days, uh, expansion teams, you know, there wasn't the free agency open checkbook way of, of you know, putting a pretty good 25-man team on the field right away. It took quite a few years to develop any kind of real competitive team. And so basically they, they had a tradition over the couple of years that they existed of bringing their number one draft pick the season, you know, the June before spring training to big league camp. And I was that guy. And I went, I didn't go to spring training with any intention of making the major league team. I was just the guy that got picked first and this was going to be cool. But if I backtrack a little bit, I did have a brother who was a pitcher who was five years older than me and played in the Houston Organi uh, Houston Astro organization. And, you know, he, he threw me batting practice when I was a high school player. And he was a triple-A pitcher at that time. So I was, I was at least in the batting cage facing a legitimate triple-A pitcher at about 15, 16 years old. And so that had to at least help me a little bit in the process of getting there quicker because I was, you know, most people didn't have that opportunity. <laughs> Very, I mean, that's pretty rare to be able to face that kind of pitching at that age. And so that certainly sped up, sped up the process, but I didn't go to spring training with any, like I said, uh, anticipation of making the team. Um, as a matter of fact, I was still on, making a long story short, but I was still, hadn't been cut or anything with about, a week to go in spring training. And I was thinking, wow, this is pretty fun. I've got to play almost the whole spring here with the big league guys. And we get on the bus to go across town to play somebody. I don't, doesn't matter who it was. And you know, Brett, that usually the manager when you're in spring training is the last guy on the bus. And when he gets on, you take off. So I get on the bus and obviously being a young player, I was never late or anything. And, I get on the bus and Del Crandall was the manager at the time and he's already on the bus sitting in the first seat. And I, my heart kind of skipped because I thought, shit, am I, I'm, I'm late. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how, you know, uh, how the manager get on. Did I screw up somehow? And he says, son, sit down next to me. And I look back and there's hardly anybody on the bus yet. So I know I'm not late. He just got on the bus early and, he probably got on because he wanted to talk to me. So I go, okay, here it is. Where am I going? You know, hopefully it's at least maybe I get to go to double A. Who knows? And he says, sit down. And I'm expecting him to tell me, you know, hey, we really enjoyed having you here. You did well for young player. Go down to wherever. And hopefully we'll see you back here one day. Well, he doesn't. He tells me that I'm going to make the team and I'm his opening day shortstop. And now there's probably a week to go in spring training. And I go, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. 
But what he said next was the kicker. He says to me, hey, we don't care what you do with the bat. Your hitting will come. You just catch the ball, make all the plays, and don't worry about your offense. Well, if he only knew what I believed in my mind and in my heart, he never would have said that because I always knew I could hit. I wasn't sure I could play major league shortstop. Wow. It's, it is. And, and people, they, I don't think you can quite grasp it. 18, not only are you going to the big leagues, you're in the lineup. You're playing by far in, in my, you know, I was a shortstop. We're all shortstops. Uh, I was a shortstop through up until the draft. We all are. And then the ones that really aren't cut out for short, we go over to second. That's what I did. I remember my first, uh, first camp. They said, take your position. You know, it was all the draftees. And I started running to short and I'm kind of looking over my shoulder and they said, boom, you go to second. I said, yeah, that's where I'm a little more comfortable, but you're right. The challenge, the challenge is playing short at the big league level. It's, it's by far the toughest, most demanding position. Uh, And for you to do it at 18, I mean, a year ago, Robin, you're playing varsity baseball and now you're facing Nolan Ryan. Yeah. That's amazing to me. Well, I was winging, I was winging balls over the fence too, throws and balls going left and right of me. And you know, like I said, I I had the range and everything. But I major league shortstop every single day for 162 days is, you know, that was a challenge. Like I said, I I felt like I could hit, but I didn't know. But and and so I felt more pressure to play defense than I ever did. That you know whether I could make it hitting, and I struggled to be honest with you. I was you, you didn't get a hit till your fifth game. Well, that's, how, I didn't care. How are you that. feeling right out of the gate? Oh, for your first four don't games. Remember when I told you they told me to make all the plays? Don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about your hitting. Yeah, because we never worry about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, no. So I didn't. I wasn't concerned about that. I was just concerned about playing playing defense and. It was definitely on the job training because I didn't, I really wouldn't have been had the opportunity to play on 90% of the other teams at that age. I was a 18 year old that still needed to learn how to play the game at that level. And I, and I, I was lucky enough to be able to do that in the major leagues. You know, I, I had my growing pains and they were mostly, they were mostly defensive. I'm, I led the league in airs multiple times. I can tell you, I had to work on my defense a hell of a lot more than I did my offense. Fifth game, you get your first knock. Oh, go ahead. Yes. The the one thing that meant more to me than anything I did in the, in the big league, just from an individual standpoint was to win a gold glove one year because defense did not come easy to me. I worked way harder on my defense than I did my hitting. Fifth game, you get your first hit. Sixth game, and I think I think still you're the youngest youngest player to ever to to go deep. Uh, and I think it still stands. Or you're the or or no, you're the last one to do it at that age. I mean, there's you know, and you're watching the game 
day, uh, there's young kids coming up, you know, every year. And, and, and you started with a trout and a Bryce Harper. They weren't 18, though. They were 19. And, and guys at 20, even even guys that are 20 today, you know, you've got to sit back uh, and watch the game today. It's pretty impressive when a young man, 19, 20 years old, gets to the big leagues and, and for guys like us that have been through it and know the rigors of it and, and you to actually have done it you know how tough it is so whenever i see a, a kid at that age I, I just say you know it kind of a unicorn like if you're if you're ready for the big leagues at 19 or 20 uh that doesn't come along too often but it definitely a unique situation is there a ken barry story in there your first year in the big leagues and, and nolan ryan taking him fishing yeah no i just I took Nolan fishing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, something, something to do with Ken Berry, though. Yeah, you yeah. took Nolan fishing. Ken Berry was uh, was with the Angels, and with and and Nolan Ryan, they were teammates with the Angels for a while, and were were friends. And Nolan Ryan used to like to fish on the road, and so Ken Berry gets traded to the Brewers, and. I can't remember what happened, but the Angels were coming into town, and Ken Barry was supposed to was supposed to take Nolan fishing. And there was a small pond that was kind of epic, in about an hour outside Milwaukee that we used to fish on once in a while. And couldn't take, and 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 not only I got backtracked when he got traded to us, he didn't have a place to live. Kevin Coble was a picture with us, two young guys rooming together, and we had a spare bedroom in our apartment. So Ken Barry, I think, stayed with us. Or he stayed in the apartment there. I don't know how, but we lived close enough together. And for whatever reason, Ken Barry can't take Nolan fishing on this particular day that they were supposed to go. And he tells me, hey, will you take Nolan fishing? And, you know, Brett, back then, I don't know how you felt about it, but even as a young player, I didn't really talk or want to associate with the other team, especially not the pitchers. And now it's Nolan Ryan, who's already, a, you know, everybody knows he's going to be a Hall of Famer. I'm a young player. And Ken Berry asked me to pick him up at the hotel downtown and take him fishing. Well, I wasn't going to tell him no, and, you know, in a way, it was kind of cool to get to take Nolan Ryan fishing, but so I pick him up at the hotel. We go fishing, and I I think we even had a game that night. I don't think it was an option. (laughs) It might have been, but either way, I know one thing. He wasn't pitching if it was an off. I mean, if it was a game day and I was playing. But I don't, I could be wrong whether we had a game. But either way, I take Nolan fishing and we sit in this tiny little boat. It's just a pond. It's not a big lake. So we're not, we're in a little boat on a little pond. And I'm telling you, if we fished for five hours together, there was five words said that whole time. Neither one of us talked. I wasn't going to, about to, ask him questions. I'm waiting for him to talk. He's kind of a quiet guy himself. I'm a quiet, shy, young player at the time. And it was the craziest thing I ever saw. It was like, 
just the fact that two adults could sit in a boat for that long and not say a word to each other was pretty amazing. And I don't remember if he pitched later in that series or not, but it was it was just funny to look back at it that neither one of us said a word to each other for five hours. But we did catch a lot that, of fish. We were too busy catching fish. That is amazing, and it's so true. As hitters, you know, I, I used to – I don't know about you, but um, – you know, we form relationship, we have teammates and, and we kind of, as position players, we keep to ourselves and we usually hang out with other position players. Once in a while, you got a pitcher that's a buddy of yours. I used to hate it. I used to hate being friends with a pitcher and, and maybe I'd get traded or they get traded and we've got to face each other. I always felt I don't want my buddies to be on the mound. I really want to dislike you, uh, especially oh, yeah. when you're on no, the other I, team I, as a pitcher. I didn't like it at all. How did your, after that, that 74 when you take him fishing how'd you do against nolan throughout your career he get better you you get better him well i don't think a lot of people got better on nolan ryan too much but you know he was obviously an intimidating guy too you know he was pretty famous for new new guy coming up first time ever facing nolan ryan for putting one under your chin and letting you know you know who's in charge out there so you know i don't think i did very well against nolan but i do remember one day in texas i finally got him late late in the game to i hit a home run off him and i don't know maybe the eighth inning and he always got stronger the longer it went but i can say i at least i at least took him deep in a big situation one time in 20 years (laughs) (laughs) 74 out of Shoot, you hit 250 at 267, and, and you're not even 20 yet. Uh, 76, you drive in 54 runs. And this was interesting to me. To me it jumped off uh, when, I was, when I was doing a little research. Is you played with Hank Aaron. And uh, yeah. we talked about it you know, before with other guests on, on the show. Um, I don't think Hank Aaron really got his due. Because I think every he's kind of pigeonholed, you know, that you, you say Hank Aaron, oh, the home run king or, you know, he's known kind of home runs. But he was such if you really look at his numbers and especially when he was a young player, his numbers are unbelievable in every category. I mean, he could run. He could steal bases. He was he wasn't just hitting homers and hitting 258. I mean, he had 300 career uh, ridiculous over 2000 RBIs, uh, high 3000s in hits, let alone the 700 and something uh, home runs that he had. Just an amazing player. Um, and, and I just when people talk about him in his home runs, I'm like, no, you got to put him in the conversation is one of the top five greatest players ever to walk this earth. Uh, I just wanted to, yeah, I found it interesting. You got to play with him. What was that like for you? Well, and I'll just, I, I, I'll narrow it down to less than five. Maybe it's because I'm a little biased because I got to know him and be a personal friend of his, but arguably he's in the top two or three in my, in my mind, but that doesn't matter. Obviously he was a great player, a great man. And the, the 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 neatest thing about Hank Aaron now, I got to play with him my second and third year. So I'm 19 and 20 years old. He played two years with us. And the biggest impact that I would say that Hank 
made on me personally was I sat there and watched, and I'm just going to say it this way because I believe it, arguably the best player to ever play the game. And he went about his business just like everybody else. And when you're 18 and 19 years old, that is an important thing to see and recognize that it doesn't matter how good you are. You're still there to do your job and help your team win baseball games. And that's what he did. The only difference between Hank Aaron and the rest of the guys in our locker room, as far as the way he acted, was he had to talk to the reporters all the time and none of the rest of us did. Other than that, he was there for the same reason we were, to try to win a baseball game that night. And that's, seeing that from the best player that ever played, it made a huge impact on the way I played the rest of my career. Yeah, that's awesome. And Hank, uh, you know, I played in Atlanta one year, uh, 1999, and Hank had his office out there, you know, at Turner Field. And uh, I got to know him a little bit, but, you know, I always told him, I said, Hank, man, are you the best? Are you the best ever? But but uh, I, I was definitely a big fan. You know, I grew up and, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, in a pretty cool environment, going to the ballpark with dad all, all the time and being around great players. Uh, but I always... Yeah, I always liked Hank, you know, he was a little before my childhood time. I mean, you know, Hank was in the league. He was, he was going out, but, but, uh, you know, especially as I, as I grew up and became a young man and became a professional baseball player myself, I always had a fondness for Hank. And then I got to, to meet and know him a little bit at that 99th season. Yeah. He's one of my, one of my favorite guys, uh, 77, you hit 288, 78, 293. And you, and you get to a point in your career. And I found this fascinating. Um, you said you told the Brewers you're you're going to retire and you're going to go play golf. How serious were you when you said that? Because it ended up getting well, your contract ended up getting rectified. Well, you're obviously getting your information probably from a sports writer because none of that's very accurate. Oh, it's not? It, this is just the stuff I've read. No, I know. And you know, <laughs> you've been around the game long enough. You can't believe everything you read. That's true. So, <laughs> but anyhow, there was, there was, if you really want to stretch the truth, you can, you can, you can come up with a little bit of truth to that. And so I'll tell you what really happened. I lo- that's We're, what I want. <laughs> we go to spring training, and I haven't signed a contract yet. But I don't have any issues that I'm not going to get it done. I was playing spring training games without a contract. I don't think they would probably do that today. So the problem is I'm playing spring training with an injury, and I don't have a contract. And I'm not worried about the contract. I'm worried about this injury I got and whether I'm going to be healthy enough to play opening day. Well, not only am I worried about the injury, but the way I got the injury that I haven't told the Milwaukee Brewers what happened and why my foot hurt. Because prior to coming to spring training about 
a month prior to it, I'm on a dirt bike, like I mentioned earlier. I ride dirt bikes and I rode them all winter long in the off season when I was still playing. Well, I hurt myself on a dirt bike before I come to spring training. And in spring training, my foot is bothering me to the point where I can't play. And I'm afraid to tell Harry Dalton, our general manager. And I, and I, and I'm lying to them, telling them I have tendonitis in my foot. And it's, it just gets kind of funny because my rookie year, I had tendonitis in my foot to the point where uh, it didn't, it didn't heal. And I missed the last couple of weeks of the season. They ended up putting it in a cast back then. They just shot it with cortisone a million times until it fell off and it didn't fall off, but it never got better. And so I said, I got that tendonitis in my foot again. Well, our trainer, <laughs> our trainer was laughing at me when I came in and told him, yeah, that tendonitis. He said, uh, the tendonitis you had your rookie year was in the other foot. <laughs> well, don't tell them that. <laughs> so anyhow, I Timmy Johnson was our other shortstop. And I said to Timmy one day, when knowing that that's the last spring training game I can play was this particular day, because my foot's killing me and I can't keep going out there and trying to play like this. I said, Timmy, and his locker was next to me. I said, you know, if I can't play baseball, and I'm concerned that I can't play, my foot's so bad. If I can't play baseball anymore, Timmy, I might have to go play golf or something. Well, Timmy, and I, and so then I don't show up to spring training the next day. I go AWOL because I'm afraid to tell the organization what's really going on. And Timmy says to a writer, oh, he quit. He's not here today because he quit. He wants to go play golf. And that turned into I was going to – they took it that I was holding out on a contract. I'm AWOL because I want a contract, and if I don't get the contract, I'm going to go play golf. So the fact of the matter is I was hurt on a motorcycle, afraid to tell anybody, and that turned into I was going to quit and go play golf. <laughs> so that now you have the – now you have the – how did uh, – that guy, Harvey, do it. Now you hear that you've got the rest of the story or whatever. <laughs> did the contract get rectified? Of course it did. I of course it did. Be a problem with the contract. I was playing in spring training games without a contract. I've, it was, it wasn't a contract issue, and it wasn't a golf issue. You tell me, Booney. You play golf. How many three handicappers do you know? No, ch no chance. On the professional tour, the best I've ever been is a three handicap. If anybody ever did their homework, they would have known I couldn't play professional golf. I'll tell you what, I crack up when, you know, a guy finishes his career, he says he's going to go play golf. And I just think they'll laugh you off the tee box. Oh, I'm going to finish my oh. baseball career and then I'm going to go play on the senior tour. Oh, yeah? And then you're going to line up with Phil Mickelson after you've played a baseball career and, and think many, he's going to take you serious for one second? It, how many guys it, have you seen that actually did that? There, With all the guys that say it and how many actually right. do it, it's pretty, pretty low percentage. Pretty low percentage. 1980, first, uh, first time All-Star. You hit 23 home runs, uh, 49 doubles, 
the first time you hit double-digit home runs, I think, was that year. You attribute it to anything? And, and we're going to get into it a little later. I know you were into to working out before working out with Chic uh, and training and, and making your body stronger. You know, back in those days, it was kind of frowned upon. I remember uh, in yeah. Philly, my dad working out with a guy named Gus Heffling. And uh, they did uh-huh. Kung Fu, but it wasn't really big training. Um, anyway, 1980, first All-Star game. Uh, Where'd the power come from all of a sudden? Well, you, you, you alluded to it. I, you know, I'm a 160 pound weakling, you know? And so I started lifting weights. I think, I think the first guy that really, I think it was Fred Lynn, um, lifted a bunch of weights early on when he was a young player, hit a whole bunch of home runs young. And so, you know, it like you said earlier, your your dad and the generation before us, and even when we got there, they didn't they didn't believe in lifting weights. And I saw that. You know, obviously, I didn't have any power naturally, like without going out there and trying to build up as much strength as I could. I I ate every. Uh, I went to, lived at the GNC stores and took all the protein powders and everything you could possibly get to try to gain about 10 pounds. And I lifted weights hard. I mean, I bought a couple Nautilus machines and had them in my, in my garage. And so I started working out with weights really, you know, I mean, extensively for the, in the off season. And that was the difference. Once I started lifting weights and getting stronger, I, I was able to develop a little bit of power for for 160 pounds natural. I, guess, I think the most I ever weighed was 175 pounds. But uh, one spring training, my goal was to get up to 180 pounds when I went to spring training, and I think I did it right at the end of my career. But five, you know, five weeks into it, I was back to 175 or 170 pounds by the end of the season. So it was just. Uh, but it was a lot of a lot of uh, strength training with your hands and forearms and just upper body. I didn't, you know, when when we started lifting weights early on, I did leg work, but I had hamstring trouble uh, from running. So I and I'd never had hamstring trouble before. So I quit doing any kind of leg work uh, with the weights and just focused on the upper body uh, after the, you know, my my first year of doing the the whole body. And like I say, my legs didn't like it. So I quit doing that and just had upper body weightlifting programs. 81, 273, fast forward to 82. You're an all-star again and you win the MVP. Uh, you hit 331, 29, 114. You lead the league, I think, in doubles and hits, 210. And that's the season you get uh, Brewers go to the World Series. Harvey's wall bag. And I remember those. I remember those games. You, you, you had. I think you, uh, you beat the Angels, and Dad had just been traded yeah, to the your Angels. Dad was, your dad was on that team. Yeah, I remember that series, and I remember Teddy Simmons and uh, Ogilvy, Gorman, Thomas, Cecil Cooper. I love what. Did Cecil Cooper? Obviously, yourself, Raleigh Fingers, uh, who we've had on the program. Paul Molitor, one of my favorite men in in the game. You know, I. Uh, Played against Paulie a little bit. 
you know, when I was coming into the league, he was finishing up, but, uh, he was my hitting coach in, in Seattle years later. Uh, and to this day, one of, one of my favorite guys, I mean, just a pros pro and, and, uh, we used to laugh. I, I was, it was, I think it was 2000, 2004. And, uh, you know, I had a, I was coming off a big season and, and Molly takes over as our hitting coach. And I had a, you know, pretty average season, you know, a dip down for the year before. And I remember this, uh, Molly's down there working with me and, and, uh, <laughs> and we'd laugh, you know, when, when I was struggling, I'm like, well, you can't help me. And he, he looked at me, he said, Booney, he goes, you know, I could get a hit. He goes, I just can't help you get a hit. <laughs> but man, he was in there with me in the cage all the time working. And, and to this day, one of, one of my favorite guys, anyway, first world series, um, have guys on the show all the time. Some guys have three World Series rings. Some guys get to a World Series, you know. I, I have a big appreciate, appreciation for it. I got to go to one World Series. I didn't win, uh, but I got to go. And, and it just it just, it just just shows how tough it is, not only to get there and, and to win one, just, just to get there. Some of the greatest players that, that have ever played our game uh, never get a chance, never win a ring. But it, it was your first one. Uh, give me a little snapshot of that year. You coming off, you know, well, your first MVP as well. Yeah, well, you were naming off our, our, our team. We had a great team, a great team in 82. We had, we had just about everything you could, you could want, uh, pitching, hitting, power, speed. You know, we, the Cardinals could out-defense us. That's who we played in the World Series. But, uh, but the rest of it, we were just but you know anything can happen in a seven game series but we uh it's in in my career honestly Fred it was the best of times and the worst of times because (laughs) the best of times you know was going through the playoffs and with players you're so close to you you know you'd run through a brick wall for every guy on that team and you know to to play those games that you've dreamt about playing in since you were, you know, a little leaguer and actually being able to play them, live them out, you know, for real was a, a dream come true for all of us. And then to fall short in a game seven, I mean, that hurt as much as anything that's ever happened to me. You know, it was, it was like, I, that's why I say it was the great, the, the best of times and the worst of times all in a couple weeks span. But all the work you put in to get to that position and to actually be there was so worth it. And, I, and when I say the worst of times, I certainly don't mean uh, that where I would, you know, trade it. The only, the only thing I would trade it for was a win. I would, I would rather have gone seven games and lost than never play in a world series at all so from that respect you know i'm still fortunate as hell to to be involved in it but boy did it hurt when you come up short 1985 uh you hurt your shoulder i think that's the year you you went from short to playing the outfield um how was that adjustment did was it a uh 
was it a sense of relief or was it, wow, this is going to be a different challenge going to the outfield? I figured you can play short in the big leagues. You can pretty much play anywhere. How did you look at it? I looked at it like I can't wait for my shoulder to get well so I can go back to shortstop. It was, okay. I had torn my road, I, I had torn my rotator cuff, uh, toward the end of the year. Uh, whatever year that was, what year did I go to the, I think, I think, I think it was 85. So then the end of 84, I tear my shoulder up to where I need to, I can't, I, you know, kind of faked it the rest of the year. I couldn't hardly throw the ball across the diamond. But uh, I needed surgery that offseason on my shoulder. Well, it was early days. They, they were trying to fix shoulders arthroscopically at that time. And, and so I was kind of a, I don't want to say guinea pig, but I'll say I was a guinea pig. <laughs> and uh, they did arthroscopic surgery on my shoulder. And I go to spring training and, man, my shoulder's worse than it was before they did the surgery. And so I can't play shortstop. There's no freaking way I could throw the ball across the field. So they said, well, let's put you out in left field for a little while. And hopefully, you know, as the season goes on, maybe your shoulder will get better and we'll see what happens. So basically they're just trying to, I could still swing. It just, to get, you know, to throw the ball, get it up over your head was what, what, what hurt. I mean, and I could still swing the bat effectively. I, I didn't have much power, but I could at least, you know, I could still hit the ball. So I go to left field, play there in spring training, open up the season in left field, pretty much hating every minute of it. And I can remember just butchering balls. I mean, I never had to deal with lights before. I can remember playing a game in Anaheim. I got friends in the stand. That's where I was from. And I lost two balls in the light. You know, just <laughs> routine fly balls or humpback liners, but they go in the light. They don't come out. And it's like, come on, why is this happening now? I never had to deal with this at shortstop. Then we're in Milwaukee, and I play a routine double down the line into an inside-the-park home run, and it's like, I hate this. This is terrible. I want to go back to shortstop. So about a couple of days after that, <laughs> we have Rick Manning, who's a gold-glove center fielder, playing in center. And I'm still in left. And we, we're probably a month into the season, if that. I don't remember. It felt like 10 years. But Rick and I go to the warning track on a routine fly ball that either one of us could catch. We're standing next to each other. I don't remember who called it or who even caught it. But we're right next to each other. And what happens, you know that cleat on your on your metal spikes that's right underneath your heel. Well, that cleat comes down and I step right on Rick Manning's big toe with my heel cleat and I break his, his big toe breaks. So he's out after that game. And there, I think Bamberger was our manager, George Bamberger. 
And he said, uh, well, you want to try playing center until Manning comes back? And I said, I sure do, because I sure don't like left field. <laughs> and so I go over to center, I go to center field. And from the first day playing center field, I'm, I'm more comfortable over there. The ball doesn't go in the lights. The, the ball doesn't hook or slice nearly as much. You don't have corners to mess with down the lines. This was just a lot more straightforward for me. So I play center field and Manning's out probably at least six weeks with this broken toe. And so for six weeks, I'm, I'm doing a lot better in center field than I was in left. And it couldn't, it didn't matter because you couldn't throw either way. You just charge the ball hard and give it to the shortstop and they'd run it in. So the arm part didn't, didn't have anything to do with a difference, whether I played left or, or center. So Manning is finally ready to play about six weeks later. And we used to call him Archie, obviously, for the, after the quarterback. But I said, hey, Archie, I know you're a gold glove center fielder and center field's really your position. But you know when your toe's okay? how'd you like to go play left field and, I'll, and let me stay in center? And as only Rick Manning had the greatest sense of humor. And he says to me, I don't care if you want to play center, you play center. I'll play wherever you want me to play. And this is coming from a gold glove center fielder. And so we went in together and talked to George Bamberger and said, I think it was Bamberger. Maybe it was Latch. I don't know. But either way, whoever was managing said, hey, is it okay if I stay in center and you put Archie in left? And he's okay with it. And so that's how I ended up in center field because Rick Manning was willing to give up his gold glove center field and go play left field because I was doing better over there. <laughs> that is, that's awesome. Um Yeah. I mean, it is, and, and, you, and you stayed out there for, for the rest of your career. Yeah, so, okay, so let me, let me keep going. Just, so when I'm over there, for the first two or three years out there, I still have in my mind that I'm going to end up back at shortstop. Because after that year, I didn't finish. After my first year in the outfield, I get surgery on my shoulder again. This time they cut it open and fix it the old-fashioned way. And it was better. It got better, but it was still not to the point that followed the next spring training where I was ready to play short, but at least I was making progress. It was starting to get to the point where I could throw a little bit. And so now I'm at least thinking, okay, another year or two, I'll be back at short. Well, guess what? Nine years later in my retirement, it never happened. I'll bet it was five years out there before I came to the conclusion I wasn't going back to short. Well, how about this, though? So you start playing there. You hit 312, 312, 306, 312, win another MVP. Things are going pretty good for you in center field. You got to look up offensively. Well, the center field might not be too bad. Yeah, but let me tell you something. That is the biggest – you know, they say, oh, you'll go to the outfield. You you know, it'll it'll – It'll lengthen your career. Okay? That's what they tell you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
about center, though. That's, that's a lot of wear and tear out there. So, they, yeah, it'll be good for you. You know, just stay out there. And, you know, it'll be. Let me tell you something. I never ran into a wall playing shortstop. And that wall <laughs> in Milwaukee County Stadium was cement underneath that one-inch thick foam padding. And on the full run, diving and landing on the warning track, that never happened at shortstop. I took way more of a beating in the outfield than I ever did at shortstop. All I ever did was get a few scars and cut cuts on my legs from around second base playing shortstop. The outfield was way harder on my body than shortstop was. Go to 1992. Uh, take me through the night. What was the, what was the lead up? I mean, I mean, cause everybody, you know, I've talked to a, a few different guys that, that got that to that 3000 hit uh, plateau. It, was there, was there a story leading up to it? I mean, was it getting to the point where, all right, it's going to happen when it happens. When did you start thinking about it? No, there was a, a little bit of a story. I knew I was going to get it at some point, unless I just had a heart attack or something. But it was just a matter of when. And we were on the road, and I knew I, I, I needed like three hits when we were on the road, the last day of a road trip or something. And we come back to Milwaukee just for three games. And I needed three hits. So I tell a story, but it's not true, but it's a good story. That, and, and, and Mr. Selig did call me, and he was the owner of the Brewers at the time, and sort of acting commissioner, too, uh, uh, interim commissioner. But he calls me into his, the, into his office before the game and says, the first game of the three-game series, and says, you know, just want to wish you luck. Or can't wait for the, you to get your 3,000 hits. And then I tell the story that he, that he told me, but he didn't. So, but I still like the story. He said, because this is what I did. He says, but just get one hit each game so we can pack the place for three straight games. And that's what I ended up doing. I got a hit each game of the series. And so that, but he didn't tell me, he didn't say, just get one hit a night. Like it's that easy. Right, right. So he could, right, he could pump it the next night. Come see Robin. Is tonight the night? Yeah, exactly. So after game two, I get, I get a hit. I get one hit the first game of the three game series. I get a hit my first time up, I think, in the second game. And now I'll be honest with you, Brett. It's, I'm, I can't get that damn thing out of my mind. I got to get a hit for 3000 and put this to bed. And I'm, I'm lying. If, if, if I don't, uh, I'm lying. If I don't say it, it's getting in my head. And so I come up for my last at back of the second game of the three game series, needing one hit and whoever's pitching for Cleveland, doesn't he walks me on four pitches doesn't throw a ball anywhere near the strike zone and it, they must have given cushions or something away that night and 40,000 people start booing and throwing cushions on the field because the pitcher didn't throw a ball anywhere near the strike zone so now 
the field is littered with cushions. Everybody's booing. And the thing is, we're in the pennant race at this time, too. And they're, everybody's pissed off because they didn't, I didn't get a chance to get a hit that time. And they had to come back the next night. So now we're back. The last game of three-game series, we go on the road the next day. And I don't have a hit. And now I come up in the, I think it's the eighth inning. And I don't have a hit. And everybody, you know, I got to get a freaking hit. These people are going to go home pissed off at me. And then I'll get it on the road or something. So fortunately, I get a hit late in the game. And we get it at home. And and then (laughs) the rest is history. Surreal moment. I mean, you knew, like you said, you knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. Let's just get it over with. You know, preferably at home to the to the fans that that you played in front of for a lot of years. At that point, uh, that was probably yeah, well, when cool. You only need, when you only need three hits in three games, you, you and there, you know you're only there for three games. You'd like to do it at home. Yeah. So I I wouldn't have sat out or anything like that. That's just not the way I did things. Had you know, if we were on the road so that I could do it at home. But under the circumstances, I certainly wanted it to happen at home then. Retire after the 93 season. uh, 31-42 in the hit category. Most hits. He had the most hits in the 80s. 1994, they retire your number. I think there's only four retired. I think Molly... Uh, Paul Molitor, Raleigh, yourself, Bud Selig, and, uh, you know, of course, Jackie Robinson, who's retired everywhere. Uh, pretty awesome moment. I mean, once again, you know, and, okay. and when I when I talk to Hall of Famers and, uh, you know, some are, are first ballot, you were a first ballot. Uh, some get in on the 10th ballot. I just had Jim, Jimmy Cott, who, who just got in on the Veterans Committee, and. Mm-hmm. He said when he got the call, he it was unbelievable. Obviously, you know, going into it, of course, you're going to go into the Hall of Fame, uh, the Milwaukee Brewer Hall of Fame. But getting your number retired, I mean, I I, I think that's so cool. It's so damn. It's nobody will ever wear uh, Robin Yount's number as long as the history of the Milwaukee Brewers goes forward. You get that call, go back for for the uh, Milwaukee Hall of Fame. Obviously, the real one's coming uh, years later, but but pretty cool. And and going back to early on when you said it was the best thing you ever did to stay a Milwaukee Brewer, you you truly went wire to wire from the from that eighteen year old kid through that Hall of Fame career. And and I, I I bet to this day you appreciate the city of Milwaukee and and they love Robin Yount. Well, and and I, and I love Wisconsin and and Milwaukee. They. You, you know, some things, some things are just meant to be. And, you know, I was a shy kid from Southern California, getting drafted by a team in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that I didn't know a whole lot about. I knew a little bit about it, only because the shortstop, Rick Auerbach, who was played with my brother at Taft, he also played in Milwaukee, uh, as a shortstop there. So we saw him play a little bit. So I was familiar that way, but I didn't know anything about the town, but I mean, it was just a, it was a perfect match for me for the, 
you, you know, just, I didn't need all the bright lights and everything to play hard and do whatever you can to try to win games. And, you know, I was, I was very, very comfortable there. And a lot of that is the, the fans and the people that they make you feel that way. And that, that whole community back there and by community, I mean the, the whole state, the Milwaukee Brewers are followed by the whole state of Wisconsin, not just Milwaukee, you know, that part of the country is pretty loyal people and they're loyal Brewer fans. And I mean, it just, it couldn't have worked out better for me personally in my career than to be drafted and play for the Milwaukee Brewers. And it just, it, it, it worked out uh, incredibly well. 1999, the ultimate, you get that call. Once again, you, you know, you're going to, you know, you got the numbers. You got to be looking at your numbers. Okay. I know these numbers qualify for, for the hall of fame still until you get the call. Do you believe it? Or, or what do you think of that day? When they're going to announce that, you know, that, uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know, you know, I, I assumed that everybody that had 3000 hits basically got in the hall of fame, but I didn't know whether that would happen on the, the first try. Cause there was some big shots that were going in too. you know, Nolan Ryan and George Brett and Orlando Cepeda all went in that same year. And you know, who knows there are sports writers, can be fickle sometimes. So who it, you know, it, but it doesn't matter whether you think that you have the numbers or not. It's, it's still a pretty amazing phone call. And well, in all honesty, I, I mean, I said it in my acceptance speech for the hall of fame. I said that I, you know, I, I dreamt about, playing in the major leagues and I dreamt about playing in a world series, but honestly, I never dreamt about being in the hall of fame. I think it was beyond my dreams and to actually be there is, I mean, I still don't, I go to that and, 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 you know, you go back for the event every year. And unfortunately we're losing more and more of the iconic figures that, have played the game, but it's, you look around and sometimes it's just, it's hard to feel worthy of the people that you're around. It's just pretty amazing place. Uh, post-career 2002, 2004, uh, you went and coached for the Diamondbacks, 2006, I believe your bench coach with the Brewers. Uh, do you enjoy that? Mm-hmm. I did. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, the reason that my coaching career didn't last longer is I go back to uh, just me personally not being a baseball only guy. I have a number of other passions that I really, really enjoy. And I found myself as a coach sometimes thinking a little too much about not that I didn't put in a, a full effort. When I put the uniform on, I'm all in. But I just oftentimes miss some of the other uh, things that I have a equal passion for as much as baseball. So I really, really enjoyed the coaching. I just didn't enjoy it, I guess, enough to give up 
some of the things that I really like to do too, that, uh, that the coaching, you know, didn't allow the time for the auto racing motorcycle race. You still doing that? I don't, I don't actually compete, but I still ride a lot. I go to the track and ride my motorcycles a lot. My son and I do track days a lot out at the track. Uh, I don't compete, but I, I have, um, I still love the outdoors. I love to hunt and fish and it's just, uh, you know, those are, and I, I honestly, I have a shop right here behind the house that I'm back there a lot working on restoring old motorcycles and maintaining the ones I have. And I really enjoy working on them too. So I don't have, uh, any shortage of, uh, of things to do. All said and done. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for? What do I want to be remembered for? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I... Maybe a guy that just tried really, really hard <laughs> and had enough <laughs> ability to... If you try really, really hard... Every time you go out there and you get to go out there enough time, you know, this is where you end up. But you, you, you got to, I don't know, for 20 years, I dedicated my life to trying to be the best player I could be and lived with the good and the bad. Very cool. Robin Yount, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I appreciate yeah, I it a lot. It's it a lot of fun. Uh, it, I enjoyed it too. A lot of fun catching up with you. And, and as we do each and every time at the end of the Boone podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. Dan. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.